Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm John Purcell. I'm here with Joel. We're sitting across from Peter Fitzsimons. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about your new book, Peter, The Catalpa? Catal- the Catalpa Rescue. Catalpa Rescue. And Joel, being the professional he is, has yeah. read it. No joke. I know your marketing manager and I know this is your interview. He's marketing like manager. <laughs> but, but whatever you like. But what do you think? I'm, I'm anxious to know. Seriously. Well, we're supposed to be interviewing you. I know, but I'm interested <laughs> because you're one of the first people that's read it. I haven't finished it, yeah. but I'm really enjoying it so far. As I said to you, it's one of the, it's the first book of yours I've read, and yeah. it's a totally gripping story. It's really relatable to my family, because I have yeah. an Irish family. And yeah, and that's really the thing it. that interests me in terms of the Irish part of it. So my grandfather came down the planks from the ship into Sydney Harbour in 1888, and I never identified as particularly Irish or even Irish Australian. I was just, you know, fully Australian. Mm. And then my uncle said to me about 10, 15 years ago, he said, said that at my grandfather's funeral, which must have been 1932, something like that, that a man had come up to him and said, great man, Mr Fitzsimons, but I never understood a word he said. And my uncle said, why not? He said, because his Irish accent was so thick. And that, for me, well, went, wow, how can that, you know, geez, I've, I'm only two generations moved on from somebody who, with such a thick Irish accent. So that gave me an interest in Irish stories. And then when I was doing the Eureka Stockade, the book The Eureka Stockade, which I hope Booktopia's got in huge stock. Well, of course we do. That, that was a great story, and that was led by Peter Lawler, who was from an Irish family, and his elder brother, Finton Lawler, was the one who, as the Irish were trying to throw off the yoke of British colonialism, wrote the immortal words in 1848, Who will strike the first blow for Ireland? Who will win the wreath that will be green forever? So doing the Eureka book and doing the Les Darcy book, which was another one. So Les Darcy also doing these books, Les Darcy being the Irish-Australian boxer, who, uh, fascinating story again, but doing those books awoke the Irish in me. And it's, it is whatever, look, people will decide for themselves what they think of the way I've done the book. But for me, it's, inspir- it's an inspirational story because the history of Ireland, and I suppose, look, I'm chair of the Australian Republic movement, so I've got an, a natural interest in moves towards independence. Australia, of course, hasn't suffered remotely uh, like the Irish did in terms of seven or 800 years. And you know, many many would say we're not suffering at all now. Suffering's not the right word, but I'm certainly for Australian independence. But it is an inspirational story of how Ireland, after 700 years of misery, of being crushed and crushed and crushed, the book that I'm writing, the book that I've written, The Catalpa Rescue, really stands as the just about the first time there was an unqualified Irish victory. How six Irish Republicans had been sent, well, there were, there were many more, there were 62 initially, sent to Fremantle Prison. Imagine leaving the green fields of Ireland, the green hills of Ireland, and purely because of you, you're not, not, because you're, not because you've murdered anybody, not because you've stolen anything, but basically because you're a Republican, um, being sent to Fremantle Prison. And the accounts of these guys, they're down in the holes of the ship. Oh, yeah, and they land at Fremantle and they can see the shimmering white sands and the burning sun. And they march up to Fremantle Prison. And they, you know, basically they, they rot there for 10 years and there's all kinds of amnesties 
few of them die, but there's political pressure from Ireland to let some of them go. But by the end of, by 1874, there were basically six hardcore ones that were left. And my, my, one of my favourite scenes in the book. Do you think I should give away the best scenes of the book or make people make, make people read it? We're, we're, we're trying to sell some books here. <laughs> just take it away. I just want to say that the, one of my favourite scenes in the book is when my hero of my book, and I dedicate the book to him, John Devoy. And John Devoy was the one that had helped organise the Fenians, helped organise to have secret cells of Irish soldiers within the British battalions that were occupying Ireland that were Fenians that were ready for the rising. So the idea was when when next there is a rising, um, instead of relying, as we have for the last 700 years, on peasants with pikes in the moonlight, we'll actually have trained Irish soldiers who will have two jobs. One is to nobble the guns and the horses, if you like, of the British battalions that are being sent out to crush us, and the other is to join us. And, you know, so it was a brilliant plan. But John Devoy, who was also arrested in the first first lot, must I think he must have been arrested. Yeah, anyway, my wife always tells me, stop showing off your grasp of dates. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Devoy is sent to an English prison and there to rot, and then with political pressure from Ireland is let out of the English prison so long he can't go back to Ireland, but he's sent to New York. And my favourite scene is where the Irish prisoners that are in Fremantle Prison on the other side of the planet smuggle out a letter. And John Devoy is by now in New York, 1874, and he's successful, become a very successful journalist, editor, publisher, and he, he comes back from lunch, and there on the deck, on the desk, is this scungy, horrible letter, and he opens it up. And the letter says, We're, we're, we're dying. We, we are in the living tomb. You've got to get us out. You, you got us here. And it was a very compelling letter which said, For Christ's sake, you know, you're living the life of Riley. We're living the life of prisons burning, burning in the sunshine of Western Australia. And the essence of the story I tell, and I won't tell the climactic scene because it'd bring a tear to a glass eye. But the essence of the story I tell is how Ireland and the United States of America combined, people in Ireland and people in the United States of America combined to pull off the great prison break of our time. Can you imagine trying to organise a prison breakout on the other side of the planet to have everybody in the right place at the right time and pull it off? And it was a really big deal because I won't... I, 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 don't, I don't want to tell all of the story here, but suffice to say that the, the climactic scene of where the chase goes on to go out after these prisoners and the whaler takes the prisoners on board and then the Coast Guard pulls up, the climactic scene with the American flag, God help me, it's got Hollywood written, or it doesn't, Absolutely. it's got Hollywood written all over it and it's true. And in my... In my Why journey. don't we know this story? Hey? Why don't we know it? I mean, because, I've been, I tell you, very, it's very good answer. Time. It's a very good... Well, there's a very... For me, there's one answer on that. It's those bloody West Australians. They generate, no joke, the West Australians generate the best stories in Australia, in the West Australian history. But they have this weird pact. There's something they take with their mother's milk and it fiddles with their head and they hold hands and every now and then they say to each other, we've got the best stories in the country. 
But don't tell any bastard living east of Kalgoorlie. Are we agreed? No, west of Kalgoorlie, you can tell east of Cal... Don't say a word. And so for me, Batavia, which... But I've always said that there'll never be a better story than the shipwreck of the Batavia, 1629, off the coast of West Australia, off coast of where Geraldton now lies, in the Abrolos Islands. I always said, that's it for me. That's the best story in the history of the world. I tell you what, the Catalpa rescue runs it close. Joel, when you were reading it, did you, were you... I know you've got to, you've got to say because you're a marketing manager or whatever you are, but were you going, Jesus, what, what, what... Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, you, and the story's really split up between different sections. Yeah. You know, you've got the build-up of the Fenian yeah. kind of secret. Yeah, to give it context. Yeah, and each bit itself had its own tension to it, mm. and as it built up to the actual, to the final... Well, if you, I'm not joking, when you get to the final pages, mm. you've got to get your Kleenex out, because you're going to be weeping as I was weeping when when... When I put it together and worked out what happened at the end, mm. you just and that's never been revealed before. So when I was doing it, um, you know, I went to so a lot of this scene is set in uh, New Bedford, in uh, Massachusetts. Now I was there in New York, so I'd finished the book effectively, but I wanted to go up and to meet the descendants of the of Captain George S. Anthony, who was the one that uh, was why I call him Captain Swashbuckle for, for shorthand, but he was the one that pulled off the, the jailbreak. And I went to New Hampshire, which is, was the whaling capital of the world. And I've been to cold places in my time. I have never... <laughs> I was freezing. But I get to the grandson's place, great-grandson's place. Anyway, I, he... The story's not really known in America either, but I knew it backwards and forwards. And I was able to tell him stuff that he didn't know. So he goes up into his attic and he brings out these papers, you know, the papers, and shows me all this stuff. And I take photographs because it changes my account. And then he brings the most precious thing of all, the American flag that was used on the Catalpa. Oh, wow. It's a, and I held it and I took photos of, you know, having held that American flag that was raised to basically ward off the Brits. The tri- I don't want to tell that story, even though that's the best part of the story. <laughs> but the love story between John DeVoy, mm. who was my hero, and Eliza is just to die for. And yeah. he really did. Yeah. It, it is extraordinary just how, uh, when you keep coming back here, and it's every six months now, you're coming back with a new story. Uh, it, it is amazing. Australian history is just so rich and diverse. There's yeah. just so much. It, it is. And so people people that don't know better say Australian history is dull. Well, they, they used to te- teach it very dully. Well, they just don't, yeah. they don't have a clue. Australian mm. history is tragic, it's inspirational, it's romantic, it's exotic. It's, it, it, it takes twists and turns along the way, but it is just amazing. The book I'm writing now is on Captain Cook, and yeah. I, don't, I shouldn't be spruiking the book that I've got coming out, but again, it is... I mean, I'll just tell you one quick thing on Captain Cook. We mentioned it while I was signing those 1,200 books. Mm. The fact... I, I was speaking in Canberra at ANU last Thursday evening to, I don't know, 100 or so, most of them were academics, and I said, OK, how many people here? We're all Australians. We all studied Captain Cook at school, at primary school, if not secondary school, how many people here know that before Captain Cook set foot on Australian soil, he picked up a musket and shot an Aboriginal man with buckshot, not to kill him, but not a single hand went up. And I said, well, how is that, how is that possible, particularly in an audience as educated as this? And I've, you know, studied Captain Cook not, not deeply before I did this book, but how do we not know stuff like that? It is extraordinary. And so with the Catalpa rescue... 
it it was perfect for me to do because it was from the point of view again I'm, I'm of Irish background it's a killer story the archival material is very widespread across the world and if you were doing it before the age of the internet too hard because you'd have to go to you know a dozen different libraries in the age of the internet my researchers and I were able to to get a lot of the, uh, you know, get all the good stuff. Although there's one story there, one of the one of the my, my principal researcher on this, Barb Kelly of Irish background. Where does she live? Bunbury. Where did where did the Catalpa first pull into Bunbury? And it was perfect. And then, so I went down, went over to Western Australia and stayed with her. Well, she squired me around for a couple of days, showing me you know all of the main sites. But she knew it locally, and I dealt with a local historian who gave me all the good oil. But one of the stories. Um, when I was in America researching it, you know, I'd done the book, so I'd been to New Bedford, and I thought, is there any, is there anywhere else, you know, any other material? I've got the story, but you always want new boxes. And there was a book done in 2006 by two Americans, and I thought, you know, and it was a, it was a good sort of, uh, how will I put it, uh, you know, a lot of documentation in it anyway. I called up, I found, I, I tracked them down, the number, I think it was in upstate New York. And I won't give the names on this occasion because it might breach their, I don't know, I just won't. But I called up the lady who'd done the book, answered. And I said, look, Peter, the time, I've just done the Catalpa Rescue. I really so much enjoyed the book that you and your husband did. Um, you know, can you, uh, I'm just wondering if you've got, if you've got uh, any more, you know, any more documentation that hasn't seen the world? And she said, I've got, I've got, yes, there is a box upstairs. And when we finished the book, I closed it. I, I closed it up. But, but I, what happened? They finished the book and then the husband passed away. And I think like a few days later. And she says, and I haven't opened it up since. And it was like, you know, for me, this treasure trove. I don't know what's in that box. In the end, she was quite insistent. She didn't want to open it, so I had to back away quietly. But I am confident. I mean, the stuff that I've got in this book is is new, lots and lots of fresh stuff, lots of fresh angles, and, you know, we're well, using I, serious researchers around the world. Well, I, I've never heard of it, so everything in it is fresh to me, so mm. I, I won't have any comparison to, to go to. But when, when I was... I started reading it um, for this podcast, what... How do you keep on track? Because when you get involved in the Irish question, there are stories going off in all directions. People go off in all directions. You end up in America. You end up, but there's, there's then there's the history of the, the spine Irish. of the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and how do you how do you keep focused yes, in, well, with all that you, research? You and I have just been with my publisher Matthew Kelly, and well, so Matthew's always saying to me, "Don't write so much. Don't write so much. Cut yeah. it back. Cut it back. Cut yeah. it back." And in the end, I do write heaps, and most of my books, I'll take it up to two fifty or three hundred. And then you slash and burn. Yeah. And it kills me to slash and burn because, you know, when you wipe out a third of a chapter, five weeks, six weeks, ten weeks of my life finishes up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. And it kills me. But I find I like, I love the line, an apocryphal line, no doubt, but it was said, Michelangelo, they said, how did you do the statue David? How did you, how did you do such a fine thing? And he said, very simple. I started with a block of marble. I got David to sit in front of me. And anything that didn't look like David, I just chipped it away. <laughs> and so one of the things I learned early on in writing books, the first serious book I did was the biography of Nick Farr-Jones, the Wallaby World Cup winning captain of 91, who mercifully was my best mate. So and I've experienced a lot of what I was writing about, sadly not the World Cup final nor the 
84 Grand Slam, but don't get me started. But I had one creative idea. Well, I had many creative ideas, I guess, as I was doing it. But one of the creative ideas was when Nick met Sir Donald Bradman. With So Nick and Angie went down to meet uh, Sir Donald Bradman and I think Lady Jessica, from memory, was the one wife of uh, Sir Donald. And they they closed up. They, the, a local restaurant said, nobody else can come today except Sir Donald and his wife and Nick Farr-Jones and, and his wife Angie. And they had this lunch. And my creative idea was... What a, the waiter, the guy that's serving them the food, he must have heard snatches of their conversation. This is a big deal. And so it took me two days to track him down, phone call after phone call. I finally tracked him down in Darwin. I wrote the story, and as I'm, I put a lot of effort into it, doing it in a creative fashion. And as I'm reading my, my book back before I send it to the publisher, this little voice whispers to me, this is dull, this doesn't work. And a bigger voice said to me, hang on, you can't, you can't cut that. That's so creative and that's, you know, two days of your precious time has gone into that. <laughs> but over time, the bigger voice, this whisper became the big voice and it was, it doesn't bloody work, get rid of it. And so in answer to your question, I write long and then I slash yeah. and I bring it back and I get to, I work in one of the not- notations to my researchers, bloom and seed, bloom and seed. So you can't just have an anecdote that's a killer anecdote on its own, Jeremy fell off the boat because he was being... Jeremy, well, in fact, in my Captain Cook book, uh, my Captain Cook, my book on Captain Cook, um, there is a scene when they're... before they get to Tahiti on the first expedition where it's a tragic scene where a young sailor is being bullied, badly bullied, and thinks he's going to be in terrible trouble with Captain Cook and jumps into the ocean and takes his life. And that's a really upsetting anecdote and there's a lot of detail on it, but it don't work unless you can find the seed, you know, you, unless you can put it into context. So that is one of my notations to my researchers, seed bloom, seed bloom, this is a great seed, what happened? This is a great bloom, where's the seed? Can you find me the detail mm-hmm. of who this guy was, where he came from, what is the culture that begat that kind of bullying, etc., etc. And in the in the case of the Catalpa rescue... There were so many, so many colourful characters and the grand sweep of history was so strong and people, what my, the books that I love doing most are ones that are sort of lost to history. So, again, you're, you're, you read, you know, 75 books a year, you'd never heard of the Catalpa Rescue. And, but at the time, it was huge. It was huge in Australia and it was huge in Ireland and it was huge in America. And in America, you know, particularly New York, they had... One in five people in New York was Irish, you know, like first-generation Irish. So this was huge in New York. And when the first of the Fenians were released from the British prison and they got to New York, like with John Devoy, they were put in a grand parade up and down Fifth Avenue. And, you know, there was one estimate, like I found it difficult to believe, and, you know, 300,000 New Yorkers turned up to greet the Irish Fenians who'd been let, let free on amnesty. To, to go to New York. It was a really big deal. There was no Netflix at the time, so... No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing better to do, you yeah, think? Yeah, nothing better to do. We'll go after that. Peter, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. We've run out of time. Um, and I barely cleared my throat. I know, I know. But we're, we're very excited <laughs> about the, the uh, Captain Cook book, which is not a cookbook. Is that the problem? Yeah. yeah. The other thing I'd just say, given my my propensity to spruik books not yet written, but the, the fascinating thing with Cook is, for me... 
the relationship with Joseph Banks. Mm. Now, Joseph Banks, Captain Cook had more discipline and more like he, he he wasn't he wasn't particularly religious but it was a waste on him because he should have been religious because he was so he was the only man when they got to Tahiti he was the only man that didn't go off on what we call in the trade mad rooting mm. you know and banks banks that knew records for mad rooting and cook a fascinating thing about banks banks to get on the endeavor was this aristocratic young botanist brilliant absolutely brilliant but rich and he put put down, you know, ten thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds to equip and put on his entourage of eight fellow botanists and servants and so forth on the endeavour. Cook, when he when he was given the commission to take the endeavour out, was given twenty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had this situation where Cook Cook's father was a day labourer from Whitby, you know, poor as a church mouse. And he's nominally in command of this young fellow, Joseph Banks. Anyway, don't get me started, but it's a great story. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And you can get hold of all of Peter's books at booktopia.com.au right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.